Okay, so welcome to our uh, third session on mindfulness of the body through this sutta, MN119. And um, we'd like to begin with just an opportunity for you to share any um, questions that you might have at this point, or if you have any comments, if I don't know if any of you took up the invitation to do some of these practices a little bit more um, in a dedicated way over the last five days or so and see what happens, see if you could discover something different about your experience of the body. So I just uh, open the floor for for any of that and please use your Zoom hand um, because I might not see you with more than one screen. Amar Staten, is your hand up or is that a thumbs up? Um, I don't know. May have been from a prior meeting, but I'll, I'll say something. Okay, great. <laughs> Thumb and hand aside. Um, I spent quite a bit of time on um, in the Sutta number seven, uh, meditating on the foulness um, of the body parts. because it was not one that I would normally gravitate to. But um, I felt like it was um, because of that feeling that it was a good one for me to um, spend some time with. And um, the more I meditated on it, um, kind of, kind of going from head to toe in as many areas as I could remember from the sutta, I noticed a certain, um, shall I say, uh, ease around uh, around uh, the body parts that are we normally don't think about or aren't um, prevalent in um, in our you know in everyday society, so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, keeping it short, that it, it's been good to do that. Um, and I'll continue to work with the sutta um, for a while. So thank you. Wow, thank you. I love that comment because, um, for, first of all, you tried something that seemed a little odd and unusual just to see what would happen, which is something that is really a wonderful thing we can do in practice, um, not always just to do what feels comfortable or interesting even to us. Um, And then I also appreciate that what you discovered, um, I mean, who knows, we could discover all kinds of things doing that. But uh, what you found, you you said ease um, with things that are not as commonly seen. This is interesting because this is one um, possible result of that practice where we we just allow the body to be as it is. And there are some parts that aren't that beautiful. (laughs) And it might be that we're sort of um, I'm now going beyond what you said, so I'm just speaking in general. But it might be that the parts that aren't so beautiful are a little bit icky or, you know, uh, we just kind of sweep under the rug a little bit. You know, it's like, well, we just won't look at that part. But if you allow, oh, this could actually be something that is, you know, inherently in my material parts, but isn't that pleasant. And you just say, well, that's great. That's how it is. <laughs> Fine. Uh, it can bring a certain ease, just allowing that to be as it is. Um, not everything about the body is pleasant. So great. Good comment. Um, Debbie. 
I have a very old gymnastics injury when I was a kid. I was a gymnast. And then a year ago, I was running after a sled carrying my granddaughters and tore my hamstring, which really is painful. <laughs> it's a long, slow recovery. And then a couple of months ago, I fell off my bike while stopping too fast, clipped in. So all these things really, I've had a lot of discomfort. I mean, really, because I'm very active. So I decided my week, I was going to explore pain and where it started. And I was became very curious with the texture of the pain and analyzed it from my back all the way down to my foot. And oddly enough, I became friends with it. I mean, it was just an unusual thing to watch pain in my body. And then I'd stop throughout the day, not just during meditation, but while I was walking or back on my bicycle or sleeping and I was awakened by the pain, I just started to meditate on the pain. And that was a stunning experience. So, so wow. thank you. Thank you for sharing that one too. It's um, it's so true with the body that it has these things that we would rather kind of not approach closely. But when we do, we can discover all kinds of things, ease or friends or all kinds of things. And it's true, the body, um, the body is very prone to pain. And but the analysis of it is that it, it changes when we look at it carefully, right? It sort of breaks up, shifts. We can see it beginning, ending, rising, falling. It becomes a whole phenomenon in and of itself. And even though it is not a pleasant um, input, it actually can be the uh, basis for jhana, even uh, that sensation. So it's um, quite powerful. So I love that you've done that exploration. I don't know if any of my co-teachers might want to add anything. I think we've all worked with pain. Okay, um, then Charles Lee, your hand is up. There we go. Um, yeah, I resonated with the with the uh, the uh, you know working with kind of that body scan type uh, type work, and also elemental uh, practice with uh, washing dishes or folding clothes, folding laundry. Uh, you know, really taking advantage of uh, uh, the tactile sensations in the uh, in the hands, the feeling of warmth, the pulsations running through the hands, and. Um, had kind of a, an insight. I remember learning in biology class that, you know, the mind or the brain or whatever, uh, you know, I interact not with reality, but with a map of reality. And these practices have helped me to kind of be able to change that map. So, you know, I, I remember getting an instruction to, uh, oh, I remember, you know, feel the back body. I remember the first time I I heard that and I was like, what is that? <laughs> what is my back body? Now I can, now I can feel it or, you know, try and, you know, feel your, you know, third toe. Um, and, uh, uh, but there's also some, there's a lot of neutrality uh, in that, in that uh, Vedna tone, which is a place that I can kind of go if, yeah, if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, having, having too much pain. So thanks. Oh, thank you. Those are, that's also good to hear and that um, 
we see that the another area that the mind that the mindfulness of the body can lead to is understanding the connection between the mind and the body and the degree to which what we think we experience just as you know the body it's you know that's what it is it's a it is that it's actually very much dependent on how we see it you call it a map um, or an image or something inside inside of us and that that is something that can change through practice sometimes deliberately because we decide to see things differently but also just doing these practices it will change in certain ways that we couldn't have imagined ahead of time um, okay maybe go ahead neuroscience has the word it's called the homunculus uh-huh so, yeah the nerds want to look that up i don't know how to spell it yeah, I think that's the idea that we have something inside that's kind of watching and seeing all that's going on. Um, we can look for that homunculus. <laughs> that's another interesting thing to turn attention toward. Okay, I think, um, Kathleen, if you're willing to wait, we do have another Q&A session. Okay, great. So we'll um, move on to David um, telling us about the jhanas. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Diana Ying. And also for the questions. Thank you. I have thoughts on the questions. I'll see if I can weave them in there, or maybe we'll return to some of these things, the body map, the homunculus, etc. Fascinating pain. But now the jhanas, and I expect everybody here has sort of had some, you know, has has heard of the jhanas. And I think the principal thing I'd like to do, if possible, in about 15 minutes is demystify uh, the jhanas, demystify this aspect of our practice uh, that is termed in the Eightfold Path, wise samadhi. Um, and we can do this by looking closely at the sutta in front of us, Majjhima Nikaya 119, uh, has descriptions of the jhana that may be surprising in that they present, I think, uh, aspects of our meditation practice that are pretty familiar, much more familiar than you might think uh, if you've read a lot about the jhanas, particularly about how the jhanas come to be presented in later commentarial tradition, particularly that associated with the Vasudhi Maga. What we find in the suttas is something not like a foreign country where you like don't understand the language or recognize the landscape, but something more like um, something much more familiar, maybe like an orange, a fruit that when it's described, you recognize, oh, this is, this is, I know this, I know this fruit. I like the, uh, the orange analogy because the jhanas or the samadhi, the, the deepening um, collectedness and stillness of the mind that develop in the meditation are a fruit of practice at the same time that they're a condition for um, insight. The still mind sees clearly, or you could say the collected mind, the collectedness of mind and meditation provides a field for insight. So, let me, um, let's turn to the text without further ado and uh, just, just work through this a little bit. I'm going to kind of read some of it, but I'm going to, as I read, provide sort of running color commentary that, again, I, I hope will have sort of the effect of making, making available, opening a door to um, something, an aspect of practice that actually like the practices with 
uh, the 32 body parts or the charnel ground meditations can seem, you know, very different or very um, difficult to uh, settle in with and comfort uh, practice with comfortably. And I'm going to use a physical book. So I, I hope I can put this up here in a way that look at that. You can't even tell that I have a book in my hands. Um, but we, I'm going to change glasses. Yeah, so what we get here is this. Practitioners, when secluded from sensual pleasures, and I'm reading again from the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation and with a certain amount of correcting, as I like to think of it, for gender and to make it um, relevant to our practice. Practitioners, when secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a practitioner enters upon and abides in the first jhana which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of this seclusion. I just want to stop there and say, so this is probably familiar to us. The activity of the mind by which we direct and redirect our attention to the breathing, for example, or to other aspects of our bodily experience, like those we've just covered up to this point in Majima 119. Uh, this returning of thought is what is, what is uh, referred to here as applied and sustained thought. We're all familiar with that. This is one of the earliest instructions we receive. When the mind jumps away, when the mind gets contracted around, you know, a distraction, a pain, a sensation in the body, an emotional current, we gently, without hurry, bring it back to center, bring it back to here and now, bring it back to the breath or the four elements or the body parts. With that can come some physical pleasure. And this can be a little tricky for us because in the meditation practice, along with pain that comes up, there can be significant pleasure that arises. And we're encouraged in this text and in other texts in the Majjhima Nikaya to cultivate this pleasure, this pleasure born of the seclusion of meditation practice that arises without dependence on conditions, external conditions. So it says, a practitioner makes this rapture and pleasure born of the seclusion of meditation practice, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body. So this is a bodily practice in which we're encouraged to let this, uh, the good feelings that come with the meditation, fill the body, drench the body, steep within the body, pervade the body. And a wonderful simile is given for this practice here, that this is like uh, a bath um, what do we say? A bath attendant or a bath uh, man who takes powder, mixes it with water and creates what was used for soap uh, in this particular place in the Bronze Age. You might think now, if you bake bread, if you need bread, if you work with ceramics or ever have, that we do the same thing. The mind redirecting attention to the here and now where the breathing's happening, where the body resides, is this, this activity of pushing the pleasure throughout the body, really sustaining it. Um, that This is like the kneading of bread or the working with ceramics of getting the mixture of clay and water or wheat and water to the right place, drenched with it, but not sopping wet, right? Unless you're making a special kind of sourdough loaf where you want those big holes, in which case you want it very hydrated, as I said. I bake a little bread occasionally. 
So in doing this, we read here, this is also how uh, a practitioner develops mindfulness of the body. This, this way of bringing our attention back to the here and now that, uh, uh, and along with it, this, this spreading the good feelings that come with the meditation throughout the body. And then again, we might say that in this text, these are presented as four distinct states. Your experience may be a lot more fluid. And what you can pay attention to here is which aspects of these descriptions are kind of strong at a particular time and then maybe weak in another. The big distinction between the first and second jhana is a simple one, really, that there's less mental activity to keep bringing the mind back to the here and now. And maybe that pleasure steeping throughout the body becomes sort of self-sustaining, doesn't need a lot of doesn't need a lot of effort or efforting, and instead flows pretty naturally. And this is what's described in the second jhana simile, that this is as if we were sitting in a mountain lake that doesn't receive its fresh water from rain or inlets of streams, but rather wells up from an internal, um, an internal source, an internal um, spring. And again, I would ask you whether you have this experience occasionally in meditation of a sense of ease, maybe something happening sort of naturally, organically, without a lot of effort. Maybe the mind comes back up, we apply a little bit more effort, and maybe the mind then settles a little bit more. The next place we find ourselves, there's an ebbing of some of the maybe more intense, like pleasurable feelings, and maybe more of an upwelling of what we could call a glow of contentment, something that maybe is a little bit more of mind than of body, but still pleasurable or pleasant. The simile given for the third jhana is that of a still pond in which lotuses are growing. And I like the, in my mind, I have this sense of the lotus is very gently moved by a very, very slow current. Sense of real collectedness, ease, stillness, that's there in the mind, that's accompanied by an, an, an awareness of the pleasantness of, of that particular mental state and the stillness and collectedness and unification of the experience. In the fourth jhana, even this sort of glow of contentment can fade. And again, you may have found yourself in meditation sometimes where there isn't much effort happening. The mind is pretty pretty easy coming back to the center again and again, doesn't need a lot of force or effort, where the some maybe the sense of enjoyment of the seclusion has given away to greater, um, greater contentment of mind. And even that sometimes fades where what's left is just clarity, or as is described in the description in the text of the fourth jhana, as a, as a, as a, as a purity of equanimity and a strong holding to the center of experience with our mindful attention. And the uh, lovely simile that's provided here is this one of a cloth draping the body. I like to think of the cloth as cloth, but mostly characterized by light, that there's this sense of um, a lightness of experience, a lightness of being, a lightness of um, centered, collected attention and awareness. So putting aside the text, and I encourage you to read it maybe a little bit more with some of what I've tried to imbue this reading with, which is a sense of just the simplicity of these descriptions. 
the way in which they really are uh, very connected to bodily experiences of meditation that we're very familiar with. And um, again, maybe to move away from a sense of uh, attainment around the jhana, so-called, maybe a sense of understanding that we, we, we find this as a fruit of practice as we keep bringing our attention to the body, as described in Module 119. We find there's this natural stilling of the mind, the natural collectedness, the natural gathering around the center of our experience. And as that happens, we, we find a, a growing clarity. This is the link between insight or being able to see clearly how things arise and pass away or various other aspects of our experience that are frequently hidden from view until the mind is still, until the mind is quiet. Elsewhere in the texts, the, you'll see this referred to quite briefly and elliptically. You'll, 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 in the Eightfold Path in particular, the uh, jhanas are subsumed to wise samadhi, sama samadhi, sometimes translated, never by myself, as wise concentration. And I wanted to leave you with this note. If you've heard the word concentration and uh, maybe wondered how that has a place in the kind of opening of mind, right, and freeing of mind and stillness of mind, with which our current conception of concentration seems a little foreign, I would just point to um, the literal meaning of the word concentration and the meaning it had up until very recently. In fact, the meaning it had up until the time of the people who translated these texts into English, people who were male Christian colonial administrators, among other wonderful attributes. But the, 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 the meaning of um, concentrate, you can figure out if you took Latin in junior high school, like I was forced to, it just means to with or together with the center. And from early on in the use in English, it meant the action of bringing to a center, the act of collecting or combining into or about a central point. This is from the online etymology dictionary, one of my favorite online sources. And I think you can see how this reading of Majima 119 supports this idea of this word concentrate, bringing things to center. Again, we're not making anything up here. This actually happens when we bring mindful attention to the body. We come to the center of our beings, the center of our experience. That's where the breath happens. It's in the middle of the here and now where the body lives always. When we bring the mind there, encourage it to rest, can become still, open, translucent, clear, in a way that allows us to see clearly and uh, know the world maybe more, more, more honestly, more as it is. Diana. Thank you, David, for this uh, description of uh, the jhanas and the similes in there. And sometimes I appreciate very much, David, how you were emphasizing, you know, we have some familiarity with this, because sometimes, and I know I certainly had this experience at the beginning, being like, oh, this is like formulaic, technical, I just can't relate to it. But just this, maybe like how we um, heard earlier, how some people doing some practices discover, oh, yeah, when I really work with it, there's a way in which it makes sense. So just leaving open that possibility that as we practice and become familiar with the teachings that um, these may become more and more familiar unless this technical formulaic 
experience and more a part of our individual experience. I'm going to lead us in a guided meditation. And I'm just going to um, start just by saying, uh, also highlighting what David said, that this any like deepening or softening or broadening of our practice is it's enormously helpful to have this attitude of openness, softness, this inclusivity, warmth, as opposed to this idea of like I have to get something. It's more this movement of kind of letting go, this movement of uh, openness is which allows the mind to settle down. And you'll notice that in Majma 119, Kaya Gatasati Sutta, that um, the jhana descriptions follow the practices of charnel ground contemplations. We haven't spoken a lot about that, but charnel ground, you know, contemplating how one's corpse or skeleton is, there's a lot of letting go that happens when you, as the as the sutta points to, to when you bring to mind that oh, this body too is of the same nature. It'll be like that. It'll be a skeleton. It'll be a corpse. So there's some letting go that happens. So that's the movement. That's the direction we're going here. As opposed to this feeling like I have to attain and get and get focused, it's an opening, a letting go, a softening. Okay. So... We'll take a moment to settle in, settle into our posture. Allowing yourself to adjust the posture in a way that feels like it could be balanced and you could sustain here for a little bit of time. to sit and know that you're sitting. Feeling the sensations of sitting, maybe the sensations of touch with the floor, the cushion, the chair. Whatever it is you're sitting on, Perhaps noticing the hardness or softness of it, feeling the pressure against the body, feeling the support. Feeling the pressure against the buttocks, the legs, the feet. Connected, grounded. Bringing an aliveness of attention, of mindfulness into the body, into the bodily experience. Inhabiting the body with aliveness, with presence. 
Maybe checking in with the face, how the face feels right now. And if you notice there's some holding, some tension, relaxing as much as you can without making it a big project, just softening. And feel how it feels to let go, to soften, to relax. Around the eyes, around the jaw, the neck and throat. It's okay if all the tension doesn't go. Just whatever is possible right now. Feeling into the shoulders, allowing them to drop down. The arms and hands. upper back, the lower back, tuning into how it feels. The chest, the belly, Tuning into, feeling, sensing, softening. Can we be with this experience of bodily life right now? Opening to it. Allowing, as best we can, welcoming. Is it possible for the remainder of our meditation period here, to set the direction as one of kindness. Set the direction as one of warmth, openness. Holding yourself in care. Holding yourself in a kind attitude. Not a self-improvement project. And at any time, returning to this orientation of warmth and warm-heartedness and kindness. Tuning in to the sensations of breathing. 
with this warm-heartedness. Feeling the expansion and contraction of the chest or belly as the breath arises and falls away. When the mind wanders, it doesn't have to be a problem. Just very simply, gently begin again with the sensations of breathing. Letting the breath bring awareness and ease to all parts of the body. In a relaxed manner. Maybe there's a way in which you can sprinkle awareness on those areas that might feel a little dry. In the same way that we sprinkle water on flour when we're making dough, the movement of the breath could be like the kneading, the gentle movement. to stay with the breath. Allowing this warm-hearted awareness to pervade the body. Maybe a little bit more water gets sprinkled on the flour, on the bath powder, so that it's the body is completely pervaded. <laughs> <laughs> 
but this warm, warm-hearted awareness that allows a sense of ease. We're not denying or suppressing other experiences, but we're letting the awareness be filled with any sense of ease, allowing the ease to grow and become as big as it would like. not forcing anything, just creating the conditions in which the body can be filled, steeped in warm-hearted awareness. This growing sense of stability. Steadiness. There might be some thoughts or sounds or bodily sensations that arise. That's okay. Just let them be almost as if they were this gentle ball of string that just rolled towards this solid, steady door. Just a soft little bump. Doesn't knock over the door, doesn't knock over our stability, our steadiness. In the body, steep, filled, pervaded with this warm hearted awareness, there can be a sense of being filled up 
saturated. And the breath be allowing any parts that still feel dry to become moistened. Anything that feels maybe a little bit crumbly can feel brought into this perhaps water jug of water, this jug that's filled with water, a sense of fullness, completeness. This filledness, sense of being filled, is contributing to this stability so much that the distractions just simply don't enter. We're filled up. being filled up means we could if we wanted to have the awareness go a particular direction just very simply tip this water jug that's filled with water filled with this warm-hearted awareness it's just perfectly natural that water flows out in the same way Perfectly natural that our awareness could flow in the direction we'd like it to go. Just by tipping, inclining the mind. Staying with the breath, allowing the breath to be the vehicle in which can fill up and pervade this bodily experience.
So thank you. Introducing some of the similes that we find in this sutta, ways that we might work with them or consider them. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ying. Yeah, thank you, Diana and David, for uh, this beautiful uh, meditation and the teachings. Uh, I want to just check if you can hear hear me okay. Yeah, okay. So we'll transition and follow on what um, uh, David and Diana uh, shared. But I also invite you to maybe engage with this part of the teaching uh, through the body. And so bring this um, in as part of uh, your practice as you listen and um, kind of take in uh, what I'm about to share. And so now that you've heard about the jhana similes and uh, some of the similes that uh, Diana brought in uh, in this next part of the sutta. But before I go there, I wanted to just say a few words about how the Buddha uh, used uh, often and the similes and images in his teachings. I want to share uh, this that uh, one of the uh, insight teachers uh, spoke about this, and Shaila Catherine uh, spoke about this. The Buddha's teaching skill shines through the wide range of examples and similes that he used to convey subtle point of instruction. And these images help ordinary people comprehend deep topics. And the uh, the striking similes continue to help meditation students gain a down-to-earth sense of the profound path taught by the Buddha. I think you probably have a little bit of a sense as... um, you engage uh, with the guided meditation that just happened. And so for me, it definitely feels this a sense of using similes and images. Uh, it's like a, a, the Buddha's creative way of uh, finding ways to convey uh, things that are hard for people to relate to. I imagine, you know, uh, so much of this is the inner unfolding um, that the Buddha went through himself and finding ways to share uh, this um, a deep sense of knowing uh, with others. And so he's very creative in bringing um, the similes and images uh, so that uh, the students and uh, yogis have a way to relate to them uh, through maybe felt sense and 
um, through the images that he uses. So it's a functioning kind of like a poetry and art um, that opens a ways for us to relate to them. So I'm going to move on to share uh, you uh, the next part of the sutta, which is titled uh, Progress Through the Mindfulness of the Body. And from all these uh, practices that you've been engaging in um, and um, the jhana practices. Now this next chunk is uh, speaking about where uh, this mindfulness body is leading towards a progress, a, a progress through the mindfulness body. And uh, this part of the sutta starts from section 22, uh, starts with an overarching image of uh, the streams flowing into the ocean. And so here, the image of streams flowing into the ocean is used to describe uh, the goodness of cultivating mindfulness of body is like the ocean that includes all the wholesome qualities, like the streams that are partaking in awakening process. Such goodness, kind of um, all coming in through this powerful practice of mindfulness of the body. And so this is a quite a powerful and vivid image. And for me, that there is a sense of uplifting of my heart. And uh, this really kind of um, um, uplifted me. And uh, uh, from there, <clears throat> then the Buddha um, expanded this a bit um, by bringing two sets of a very vivid and evocative um, set of opposing similes that describes the danger of not cultivating uh, and developing mindfulness of the body uh, and the, the reverse, the benefit uh, and the potential of cultivating mindfulness of the body. And so I'm going to um, share my screen here. Let's see if we can do that. see. Yeah, so hopefully you're seeing my screen here. I made a little handout uh, to uh, show you the few similes that are used in the Susutta. And I started with this overarching image of the great ocean that includes uh, within it whatever streams that flow into the ocean. And then this next set um, are the two opposing set of the, uh, the similes. One starts by saying that the mindfulness of body, when it's undeveloped, Mara finds a, an opportunity and a support in them very easily. And I just loosely translated as Mara uh, can easily find footing in one if the mindfulness of body is undeveloped. And otherwise, when mindfulness body is developed, Mara has a hard time to find a footing in oneself. And Mara is a, a signified and the, um, the forces of uh, greed, hatred, delusion, and uh, unwholesome forces that tend to lead us into dukkha, uh, stress, suffering. 
And so here, <clears throat> there are, uh, let me just unpack these three similes a little bit. I invite you to work with the similes, um, kind of like what Diana guided us uh, into, maybe through uh, some form of felt sense. Um, and I can't say that I know all the details of what the similes might be pointing to, but I invite you to find ways to work with the similes that may help you relate to where these teachings are pointing towards. The first set is um, throwing a heavy stone ball against a mount of wet clay or wet mud. And that is used to describe um, the um, mindfulness of the body when it's not developed, Mara can find footing in oneself. Here for me, there's a sense of um, mount of a wet mud or wet clay is that there's a sense of um, very brittle and easy to um, break. And it's almost as if you know, there's no spinal uh, strength in one's being. And so um, Mara uh, becomes a really, really strong force um, in this contrast. It's like a throwing a heavy stone ball uh, at the, uh, this kind of a wet clay and easily breaking oneself. So it's like, you know, maybe just um, some irritating, painful um, sensation in the body all of a sudden just get us into a big story about it. And so this, when the mindfulness body is not present, Mara can easily pull us out. The contrasting image is that of throwing a light ball of string at a hardwood made door panel. And so here, sometimes it's translated as hard hardwood or hardwood, uh, both are indicative of kind of the, the kind of a wood that are hard to penetrate. And so that's the kind of door that's being made. And so when the mindfulness is de developed uh, or well cultivated, there is that centeredness that uh, David pointed to and that sense of uh, impenetrable and, and Diana used to this image in our meditation also. And so in this case, then the force of Amara is more like a light ball of strength throwing at the door. It doesn't really shake us. It's kind of unshakable. You know, even if a juicy thought comes in, boom, it's just like a breeze just, you know, goes through. It doesn't really penetrate us uh, when the mindfulness body is well-developed. And that's one sense we can use uh, to relate to the similes. And the next image um, brings up a different sense for me. That's a, a lighting fire with a dry sapless piece of wood. And here, a dry sapless piece of wood has that sense of, um, for me, it was this kind of dried out. <laughs> Diana also used to this, you know, easy to crumble. And um, also a sense of a life, 
lifeless, uh, maybe very dreamy. And so very easy to light fire. You know, somebody said something um, about us. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we can get angry and just um, reactive and get caught up um, by that. But the opposite image here is the lighting fire against a um, using a wet, sappy piece of wood. For me, this wet, sappy piece, a piece of wood uh, signifies this sense of uh, juiciness as we uh, engage with mindfulness of the body, this sense of a pervasiveness of the goodness, saturated with goodness. And so when that happens, Mara is a heart to get, uh, get in and kind of take hold of us. And that the last one is one of my favorite, and uh, that is a filling water into the hollow, empty water jug. Um, used to describe maybe when the mindfulness is undeveloped, there can be a sense of um, hollowness and empty, emptiness inside. Even if our mind is busy and our life is busy, there can be a sense of a hollow and emptiness inside. And so um, we can easily get caught um, by the forces of a great hatred delusion. But the opposing um, image is that of a water jug filled of, um, full of water right up to the brim so that the crows could drink from it. I love this fun part where the crow could drink from it. And I don't know exactly why, but uh, I can't imagine, you know, the crows and the birds that have a short beak. And it's hard for them to drink from a water jar that's a half full, right? They need to stand somewhere to get uh, their beaks in there to, to drink. So there is that fullness of uh, water pervading once being. And so Amara has no chance to get in. So there are this kind of different ways of relating with the similes can help bring maybe different aspects of uh, the undeveloped and versus developed mindfulness of the body. And then the next uh, part of the sutta, I'm not going to uh, go through the similes uh, here. Um, Diana used to this uh, in the guided meditation, uh, which is pointing to that when mindfulness of the body is developed, um, there is a way that allow ourselves to incline the mind towards the awakening process. And this becomes ripened to us, like a tipping the water jar where the water would flow out. So I invite you to maybe um, look at the similes and uh, see how you might relate with them. So I'm going to pass it to uh, Kim next. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we've had quite a grand tour um, of these beautiful uh, images in this sutta. It's one of the richest parts of the sutta is um, 
really, and then that's, I guess, the richness of the body. You know, it's this direct visceral um, object that we can use in our meditation and, and become so much more as we uh, develop the mind through that. So this is now a chance for all of you to um, speak together about the things you've heard from David and Yang and maybe the di- the meditation that you did with Diana also. So the breakout group question kind of takes off from, from where we've been. And the question is, in your experience, how does mindfulness of the body help quiet the mind and lead toward freedom? So we have the quieting of the mind, the stilling of it into jhana, and then the leading toward freedom as the um, mind develops in strength and can turn itself toward anything knowable by direct knowledge, as Ying explained. So in your experience, how does mindfulness of the body help quiet the mind and lead toward freedom? So it'll be available there in the chat for you. And um, the way we'd like you to do this is You can go around in a spiral. We don't want it to just be one person share, one person share um, monologues, but also not a super quick spiral. Like this is a question where you don't need to have just a one word answer. So let's say that each person makes one point, one brief point, and then the next person does and the next, and you hopefully you'll go around a couple times and you can, um, You can wait a little bit and see if what somebody else says might bring something up for you for your next point. So let's see what you can build together. Yeah, that you're building something together uh, into a whole of how various ways that mindfulness of the body helps quiet the mind and lead toward freedom. So um, maybe the person who um, uh, has the most colorful shirt can start. Okay, see you soon. Yeah, here comes everybody back. And the recording has begun, Diana. Okay, Kathleen, back to you. Yes, um, over the last week, I had um, worked with the 32 parts of the body. Well, actually, not all 32. I mainly stuck with the group one, um, the head hair, body hair. Um, But actually getting into it, and it's such a different approach um, versus just being aware of your breath. Um, There was so much more concentration involved. It was, um, it surprised me uh, quite a bit. Um, The difficulty I was having um, just switching the approach altogether. and then some other just general questions I had. Why, why these particular parts? Um, why in this order? Um, and then I noticed things that were missing, like the eyes and the ears. Um, so those were just some thoughts I had around the last week. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, Kathleen, for uh, sharing that. It is quite a a different thing when we work with the body in this way. You were highlighting this in uh, in your reflection. And I remember when I was preparing uh, this um, uh, classes and I had this um, text in front of me, uh, 
uh, on my screen and my son was sitting next to me and he was looking at the screen and he began to read this <laughs> body hair and the sinews. <laughs> All of a sudden he turned and looked at me, what are you doing? <laughs> so, um, so that was the moment I realized, wow, you know, this is very different <laughs> from how we are relating to our bodies and what's in the body. And, uh, and so for some, someone like a, 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 a young boy kind of reading this, is kind of just like, you know, what are you guys doing, <laughs> really? And yet it's so powerful in beginning to shift and orienting our habitual way of uh, ways of relating to our bodies. Uh, and as you are also pointing out, there are some uh, interesting uh, observations and knowings coming from this uh, in terms of um, what order this is going and um, is there an order and what might be missing. And so there's a, there's a different kind of knowing and opening uh, of um, our knowing capacities to begin to come in. Um, I want to keep the questions alive uh, for yourself and then continue to, uh, to engage in with this. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Charles Lee. All right, thanks. Uh, yeah, just a thank you to the other three players in our quartet. It's wonderful, wonderful conversation. And uh, one thing I found interesting that came up was uh, kind of mindfulness practices or, or mindful movement practices. So we were talking about yoga, qigong, tai chi, um, how... Um, I guess this, you know, kind of this insight of the Pasana tradition, you know, the most movement and formal practice seems to be uh, walking meditation. But uh, I guess, is there any role or room for more vigorous uh, movement uh, and uh, maintaining mindfulness and quieting the mind? Because I find my mind is most quiet after like a run or after a tennis match. and, and, and I've had you know really serene, you know, quote unquote easy sits after you know that type of vigorous activity. Yeah, it's a, a great thing that you pointed out. I think the the sutta uses the postures and the daily activities. You know, kind of um, going out, coming back, and eating and drinking. Partly it's a kind of, a, for me, it was a sense of a descriptive of how the monastics kind of a, are, are living their lives. Um, but for us, uh, the modern Western um, lives, I, I think it's perfectly okay to open our practice up to engage in various uh, activities that we're engaged in. And so uh, running, swimming, and a great place to bring mindfulness in. And you pointed out so well that uh, this continuity continuity helps us when we sit down to have a deeper sense of a quiet and um, serenity. Yeah, 
Yeah, so yeah, bring it in when you really feel this is a, um, uh, uh, bring it in in your life. Maybe that's what I, I would say. Yeah, Eileen. Hi, I was wondering about um, when David was talking about the jhanas um, and can we experience those during walking meditation? Does it have to be sitting? I do a whole lot more walking meditation. It's easier for me to be in my body when I feel my feet on the floor. And so I just wondered about jhana and walking meditation. Or is it just sitting? Absolutely. I think, you know, that stillness of mind, the collectedness of mind are available throughout the activities and exercises or, you know, uh, instructions or descriptions that we find in, in the sutta. But there are canonical stories, stories we find in the discourses of people who find, uh, find themselves very awake as a result of or during or in the walking practice. And you, the same exact things we talked about, for example, bringing attention back to the feet hitting the floor or the ground, right? The connectedness with center groundedness, right? That's, that's available. The pleasure of the movement of the body is available and we can, we can encourage it to pervade the body, drench the body, steep the body. And similarly with each of the kind of different aspects of those experiences, they're all, they're all available in, in probably any activity of body. Then the floor is open. May I say one thing since nobody's raised a hand sort of in response to, I think it was Kathleen's very, very interesting observations and questions, which is kind of why, why, why do we find them in this order? Why? And I, one thing, is just useful to keep in mind is that we're, we're looking at the text that's a creation of not just humans, but practitioners. And that the, each of these practices seems to have found its way here because it was useful to someone in stilling the mind and seeing clearly. <laughs> and so um, the, 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 the order they're in, there seems to be, you know, some rationale or logic behind it. And similarly with the 31 slash 32 body parts, uh, you know, as you practice into it, I think you'll connect in a way with other practitioners and their experience of these practice, practice, practices that have, you know, come down a very long, have a very long pedigree of working. <laughs> so that's, that's a nice thing to keep in mind and a good answer to the question. Why is it like this? Well, because it worked, um, because it works. Okay, maybe we'll um, move on. Uh, so Kim will uh, open and see if you. Okay, so um, so we're really getting into this exploration of the body, and I hope one thing you're finding is that there are many more dimensions, maybe, to the body than we have thought about originally, and that the body as a topic in Buddhist meditation practice can really um, develop the mind. You know, we had this, we've 
see a difference, let's say, between what we can know about the body kind of intellectually. We had a reference to a biology book earlier or a biology class and what we might learn that way compared to how it feels as we use it, as we do yoga and as we meditate and and then uh, use the relationship to the mind. So um, we have a lot of uh, kind of momentum at this point. And so uh, I'm pointing us toward reading all the way through the sutta, maybe go back to the beginning. It's not too long. Read the whole thing. And then um, next time we'll be talking about these 10 benefits um, of the cultivation of mindfulness of the body. So when we have cultivated a stronger mind and are beginning to resemble more this door panel and so forth, um, then we can start to see some um, particular changes coming about that the Buddha found interesting. I mean, there's many, many things that happen as we uh, practice with mindfulness of the body, but the Buddha points out that there are some particular ones that are relevant for our path toward liberation. So we'll look at those. And then uh, maybe in terms of practice, um, pick if you're, I guess there's maybe two choices. One is try a different one that you haven't tried yet. If you're inspired, you know, somebody mentioned doing the charnel ground meditations where we hadn't even uh, talked about those really. So you might, you know, try yet a different one. Or if you feel like you have good momentum with one that you've a new one that you've chosen, um, maybe continue with that and deepen it. So those are kind of two different paths, depending what feels like it's going to be most suitable for you. But I encourage you not to just stick with the breath, which is the very first one. If that's all you've been doing up until now in your practice, um, here's an opportunity to um, explore a bit more in this realm of the body. So, um, just as a quick reminder, we do have a class just like this on Thursday in the morning. And then our Saturday class is going to be longer. Um, it's a four-hour half day from 8.30 to 12.30 Pacific time. You can translate that if you're in a different zone. And, you know, we're going to make it like a, a half day of practice with sitting and walking and a review of some of these practices and also, of course, a, a chance to wrap up together and, and summarize. So I hope you'll make the time to come. This is a sort of a special, longer, deeper class than we sometimes do, and the topic really warrants it. So um, hope to see you Thursday and Saturday. Thanks, everyone. Take care. See you on Thursday and Saturday. Thank you. 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 Thank